all. I'm going to have a stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. Uh, I'm not, I've tested, I'm not COVID. But uh, I got a little bit of a cold and it's gotten into my voice. So just bear with me this morning, all right? So if I'm not extra friendly today, it's because I'm trying to protect you. I don't want to pass this on to you. So Lord, I just thank you this morning. I pray today that you would speak powerfully into our lives. And, and Father, so often in our, in our thinking, Lord, we, we, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see clearly. And yet your word begins to illuminate and make things uh, understood as we gather in your word. And I pray, Father, today that we're going to discover an element of our lives that maybe we have never really surrendered to you. And I just pray today that you're going to help us grow, develop, and uh, really experience uh, maybe a level of trust in you and a level that you will trust us that we've never known before. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> uh, a number of years ago, a movie came out called Schindler's List. You know, it, it's really a powerful movie, a little intense. It's dealing with the Holocaust. Uh, I've actually been to the Holocaust Museum a number of times in Israel. It's very heart-rending. Uh, actually, the last couple of times, I couldn't even go through the museum anymore. It was so distressing. But it's the story of a man by the name of Oskar Schindler. He was a German entrepreneur and uh, joined the Nazi party, began to exploit the Jewish people in Poland. And so when they were forced into the ghetto, he began employing them at his kitchenware factory. Now this arrangement was beneficial for him because he wasn't paying anything. And then uh, the Jews were being protected from being sent to the concentration camps. Finally, when the Nazis closed down uh, Poland's Krakow ghetto, most of the Jews were either sent to death camps or to a labor camp at Plazo. At Plazo, many workers died, and those who were not productive were eventually transferred nearby to Auschwitz, which is another concentration camp. When the tide began to turn on the Eastern Front and the German forces were retreating, Schindler began uh, manufacturing faulty artillery for the German army. By this time, he had become disillusioned with the party. And so he and uh, his Jewish accountant, uh, they began to conspire, this guy Isham Stern, and, and so they began employing more and more workers from Platzau. And so when Germany finally surrendered, Schindler knew that he would be in trouble. He'd be wanted for exploiting these people. And as he prepares to leave, and in the movie they bring this out, as he's preparing to leave, there's over a thousand Jewish people whose lives he has actually spared because he's employed them rather than to let them go to the death camp. His accountant friend Ishak hands Schindler a piece of paper and says, we've written a letter trying to explain everything in case you're captured and every worker has signed it. Now Schindler's so moved by the gesture and he thanks them and then Ishak, uh, he gives him a gold ring. This is, they actually took it out of their own teeth to, to build this ring, you see it in the movie. And it's translated inside the ring in Hebrew. And it's from the Talmud, and it says, whoever saves one life saves the entire world. This is their expression of deep gratitude for saving their lives. Now, by this time, Schindler can't take it. He's weeping, he's sobbing. And he said, you know, it, it's hitting him. You know, like you could see a progression in his life. He, he realizes, I could have even done more. I could have saved more lives. 
And, and of course, Ishak is reassuring him, listen, 1,100 people are alive because of you. And he's lamenting, if I'd only had made more money, you can have no idea how much money I wasted, he said. Uh, again, Ishak emphasizes that Schindler, you've saved generations because of what you've done. But I didn't do enough, he said. But you've done so much, Ishak reaffirms. He's emotionally spent. This car, I could have used this car. Why did I keep this car? I could have saved 10 more people, he said. And then he takes off his Nazi lapel badge and he guiltily says, this is gold, I could have saved more. But 6,000 descendants of Schindler's Jews are now living in the United States, Europe, and in Israel. And of all the world's possessions, are not as precious as one person. It's a matter of value. How we use what God has given to us reveals much about who we are. How many say that's true? It reflects our priorities, what, what we deem as important in our lives. Do we see the resources that God has entrusted to our lives as a tool to be used to help the people around us? You know, God, I really believe, wants to change how many of us see money and possessions. I think we have a wrong understanding. We've been too influenced by the culture. Rather than allowing them to possess us, which usually entraps us into debt, and so many people are in debt today, because we've been, we've been advertised to death. We've been told we need a bunch of things that many times we really don't need. He's, he, uh, he wants to free us from that stronghold and use what he blesses us with in far more significant ways. And I, I believe that one of the most profound or powerful uh, paradigm shifts, a paradigm is beginning to see something in a totally new light is when we see ourselves not as people who own and, and, and we are you know, entitled and, and this is what we own or this is what we have. We move away from that. And we begin to understand that everything that I have is actually not mine. It actually belongs to God. As a matter of fact, God has given me this body and God has given me life and God has given me uh, my family and God has given resources and, and really I don't possess any of them. I'm just a manager. I'm stewarding what God is bringing into my life and my prayer is that by the time my life comes to an end that I have stewarded what God has given to me in the best possible way because I was designed as you were designed to bring glory to Almighty God. We were made actually to bring pleasure to God. We were made for his good pleasure. Isn't that amazing? It's not about us. And all of the people who are living as if it's about them eventually discover how miserable they become because we get so self-focused. But God wants to deliver us from that. And he wants us to live a life that it's all about him. And I'm living for his honor and for his glory. And so today, I want to address probably one of the most sensitive areas in our life, and that's our personal finances. Because money does, it actually reflects something more than money. It actually reflects time. It reflects energy and it reflects, you know, what I'm doing in my time, in my day, and, 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 and all of a sudden I'm accruing resources. But often we think that these belong to me now. And I want to shift that thinking out of our mind today. I want you to look at the word of God with me. And, and it's actually, I'm, I'm jumping on a Jeremiah, moving to Malachi, but as I was looking at this text, I realized it fit exactly into what I was sharing last week when God was calling us back to himself. 
That's exactly what Malachi is doing here in Malachi chapter 3. And I notice there that there are three ways that are mentioned that reveal a sense of withdrawal from God. You know, it's interesting as Christians, sometimes we say, oh, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet as I'm reading these texts, I recognize that sometimes we live in a little bit of disillusionment. We live in a little bit of, you know, we're, we're, we think we are in a certain place, but the reality is we're not. And I'm gonna show that to us today because there's a tendency in our lives to withdraw from God and we don't even realize we're doing it. And I wanna look at those areas. They're very subtle. That's why I've called the sermon uh, the subtle ways we withdraw from God. Uh, and so I wanna look at the first one. And the first one is a lack of meaningful relationship with God. How many know we actually cheat God by not living for him? Every human being on this planet was given life by God, and yet so many people are living a life independently of God. They're living a life autonomously and independently, and yet God is calling us to himself. God had something in mind when he fashioned you and me. Isn't that amazing? God had something in mind when he did that. And I always say to people, we need to discover what God has in mind with our lives. That's why it's so important to say, God, I want to know your will. Not what I think is best, what you think is best. How many know God's smarter than us? How many know when God designed you, he knew exactly what he was putting inside of your life. And what he was putting inside of you was in such a way to do a certain function in life and to be a part of something in a meaningful way and to discover that. You know, we can charge God and so often we do this for not caring for us or for not being there for us or being unfaithful. Where were you, God, when this happened in my life? And I hear this all the time from people. God gets blamed for a whole bunch of stuff. How many notice that? He's constantly getting blamed for things. And the reality was that if we take a look at the historical perspective in the book of Malachi, we'll find out that it was Israel that was not faithful. God has always been faithful. And I would argue that God is always faithful. You see, the book of Malachi is set in a certain interesting time. It was after the exile and they were brought back into the land. And we read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're building the temple, and they're building the walls, they're repairing the city of Jerusalem. Well, that's the context in which the book of Malachi, he's prophesying in. And now he says some interesting things to them, because, you know, Israel, who had been, you know, literally unfaithful to God over the years, and God, God's faithfulness is now being questioned by them. Isn't that amazing? Because they had gone into exile. Now they were back and they're saying, God, where were you? God goes, I've, I, I never moved. I was always there. I was always faithful to you. If you study your own history, you'll realize that you were unfaithful to me, God is pointing out. And he continued, uh, he continues to choose them as a people. He continued to bless and love Israel, even though hundreds of years of unfaithfulness to him. And how many can honestly admit, and I've been a Christian for, you know, 47 years, you know, it, it's amazing to me uh, how faithful God has been. I could honestly say that even though there have been moments I've not been faithful, God has been faithful. And most of us in this room could say that's so true. God has always been there. He doesn't just, you know, when we mess up, he doesn't say, forget it, I'm, I'm kicking you out. No, he sticks with us and works with us. I'm so thankful for that. Um, and how many times did God show his love to Israel when he sent messengers 
prophets speaking into their lives. And even though the message was rejected, and many of the messengers were persecuted and, and prosecuted and beaten, and some were murdered. It was a terrible situation. And yet Malachi gives God's response to the charge that he has not been just, that he had failed to protect them against the other nations, as well as the charge that they were not living in prosperity but under the dominion of foreign powers. But this is what God says to his people. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. The immutability of God, theologians would talk about. God is the same. Hey, what he's gonna say here applies right now. God never changes, folks. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. You know, the God who shows grace and mercy in the New Testament is showing grace and mercy in the Old Testament. The God who's judging sin in the Old Testament is judging sin in the New Testament. God does not change. So he says, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed because God is unchanging. God is merciful. How many are glad for the mercies of God? You know, I love it. I can wake up every morning and say, Lord, they're new every morning. Your mercies are new every morning. And then at night I can say, great is your faithfulness. You've been faithful throughout this day. He goes on to say, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. The problem was on our side. God created a covenant with Israel. They broke the covenant, not God. God creates a new covenant with us. Who struggles with the covenant? Not God. He's faithful. What about us? We wander all over the back 40. Come on. You know? He says, return to me. God is calling us to return to him. And he says, and I will return to you. God says, take some initiative. I'm here the whole time. Turn around. Look, I'm staring right at you. About face. Come my way. He says, I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Very good question. Well, I've already said this. A lot of times we blame God for our mistakes. We blame God for our sinful choices. We blame God that we get ourselves in a pickle. And then, God's, then we say to God, why are we in the pickle? God says, you put yourself there. You know, we're blaming him for it. You know, think of it this way. How many here have ever felt cheated? Cheated because maybe somebody didn't spend the time with you that they maybe said they would. Maybe in a marriage, maybe you feel neglected. You felt cheated. You know, God sometimes feels cheated because he's there 100%. He's giving it everything on his side of the equation and sometimes we're just kind of a little indifferent, apathetic, and I just give God, you know, the leftovers in life. Isn't that, couldn't God feel cheated sometimes? I think he could. You know, nothing has changed. God is basically saying, I've been cheated out of a meaningful relationship with you. What is the priority in my life? That's the question I have to ask myself. That's the question you and I should ask ourselves. Are we primarily living for ourselves? Or are we living to bring glory and honor to God by embracing God's values as expressed through his word? We need to live in obedience to the way he's designed us. There is a good path. There is a way of wisdom that brings blessing to our life. So I'm gonna move on to the second subtle way that we would draw from God. It's through our lack of worship expressed in giving. I, I stopped at that verse on purpose because the next verse tells us one way we can come back to God. You know, Jesus probably spoke uh, very significantly to this issue of finances and money. Do you know that? Big topic. You go, why? It's a big issue in people's lives. Actually, I could say that I, I could find out in two seconds flat, 
your priorities by just looking at your expenditures. Because expenditures say a lot about who we are. We don't want to admit this, but it's the truth. And it's true for all of us, true for me. Money just represents, as I said, time, work. It's a powerful indicator of our personal values, how we use it. And when we consider all that God has done and given to us, how should we respond to him? What should we give him? And the obvious answer is what? Everything. He gave you and me everything. And I'm going to say something. He requires everything from us. You don't believe that? Listen to what Jesus said. Unless you're willing to give your life for me, you cannot be my disciple. That's what I call everything. He's calling for everything, folks. It's a 100 a 100%, 100% relationship. You know, when people say, you know, we're married, you know, we, we have a 50-50 relationship. I go, it's not good enough. If you want to make a marriage work, it's 100% on one side and it's 100% on the other side. That's what makes a marriage work. It's giving everything on both parties. That makes the most meaningful relationship. That's what God requires. But let's take a look. Have you ever wondered this whole area of giving and why do we struggle with it? I think we struggle with it because we don't understand. I want to, I hopefully today I'm going to shatter some false thinking in your mind. Okay, let's, take, let's go a little journey through the Bible and I hopefully will show you what God thinks about giving and what we should be doing and how we should be responding and what God promises us. Let's just take a look. It starts right off in the book of Genesis chapter 28, verse 22. Jacob's rolling along. He's running away from his brother who wants to kill him. He's headed up to Haran. He's at this place. It's called Bethel because God sends a ladder down. Angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. And Jacob goes, whoa, this has got to be the house of God. He calls it Bethel because that's a Hebrew word for house of God. Okay, then he sets up a stone and he says, as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, Jacob says, I will give you a tenth. Okay? It's another word, it's a tithe or a tenth. Old Testament scholar Ralph Smith says, tithing was a very old custom in the ancient world. Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Canaanites, they all practiced tithing before Israel even became a nation. Okay? Somewhere this principle of giving to their gods a portion of their income was incalculated in the human mind. And it starts out with a tenth here. Did all of the people in the Old Testament always tithe? It seems that at a certain period in Israel's history, primarily periods of reform and revival, the people gave their tithes faithfully and abundantly. But whenever people turned their backs on God, the tithing ended, the temple went into ruin, the Levites went back to work, the whole system broke down. Interesting. It all falls apart. How interesting is that? It tells you, when we're in a right place with God, this is the right response we have towards God. Let me move on. How about the law? Under the law, it was required to tithe. Leviticus 27:30 said, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belonged to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. You know what the word holy means? It belongs. It's separated. It belongs to God. It's sacred. Listen, that's God's part. That's what he says. That was the law. That was the agreement that the Israelites came to God on. And God says, if you'll do what I ask you to do, I'll bless you. And if you don't do what I ask you to do, I will what? I will curse you. 
Remember that now. Keep that in your mind. Proverbs 3, 9. This is now wisdom literature. Later on, we're going down time. Proverbs wisdom says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. What's the first fruits? The beginning ones. You know, the, you know everyone says to me, what's first fruits? First fruits is you give God the first. That's what it means. The first that you take from the land, you give to God first. Then you, the rest of it, you use. He goes, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. What is he saying? When you learn how to trust God and give God his part, God says, I will bless you. Remember, see how that blessing and cursing thing is working here. We're under the Old Testament. I know, let me keep going. Later in the prophetic literature, we read that one of the signs of spiritual neglect and apathy is in the area of giving. And last week in the message from the book of Jeremiah, we heard a call to return to God. And here in Malachi, we hear the same thing. But I want to, uh, did I skip these verses? Look, okay, verses six through 10. Oh, I get there. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've kept, you, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. In other words, you're not obeying me, God says. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? I stopped there before. Well, here's God's answer. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God says, you're not giving your tithes and offerings. That's how you're robbing me. That's my part. You're taking it. He says, you're under a curse. Now, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I want to be under a blessing. I don't want to really be under a curse. I don't want God to say, you're cursed. That's not a good thing. How many say, I'd rather have God's blessing? Your whole nation is under a curse because you are robbing me. God is indicting them for this behavior. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store. Wow. Some people would argue that there's no mention of tithing after the Gospels. Oh, Jesus talked about with the Pharisee, a little discussion there. It is neither commanded but nor is it ended. I'm gonna share a thought with you. You know, one of the problems that we have with the law is we get to the Bible, we get to the New Testament, we say, well, the law doesn't apply anymore. Let me ask you a question. Thou shalt not kill. Does that still apply? Well, of course it does. Actually, what the gospel does is lift us to a higher level so that we can actually keep the law. Actually, the law of love is a higher standard than the Old Testament law. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the Sermon of the Mount, he says, you've heard it says, thou shalt not kill your brother. But I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. The standard went way up. You know, don't commit adultery if you have lust in your heart towards someone. You've committed adultery. The standard didn't go down, folks. It went up. That's what we need to understand. Every New Testament example of giving speaks of, first of all, giving ourselves. Generosity is a quality that God wants to cultivate in our lives. Why? Think about it this way. God wants you to be like him. How many say that's true? God is calling me to be like him. He says, be holy like I'm holy. One of the things, when you say you're a godly person, what do we mean? We mean that you're becoming like God. 
What is God like? God's a giver. God is generous. If I am like God, I will be a giver and I will be generous. If I'm ungenerous and I'm not a giver, I'm unlike God. I'm un-God-like. Ungodly. That's ungodly behavior. We just don't think of it that way. That's not how we see things, but that's the way it is. Randy Alcorn, in his book, he, he talks about this timeless truth behind the concept of giving God our first fruits. He says, whether or not the tithe is still the minimum measure of those first fruits, I ask myself, does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more? Jesus raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. Maybe you believe exclusively in grace giving and disagree with the church fathers. Origen, Jerome, and Augustine all believed in tithing who taught that the tithe was the minimum giving requirement for Christians. In other words, this is a place to start. Isn't that interesting? This is the beginning grounds. I remember as a brand new Christian, 21 years old, started attending church, and within about four or five months, one of the elders of the church says, Paul, why don't you join the church? I said, hey, great, I'm excited, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I'm loving all of this. And so he explains to me that when you're part of this congregation, you have to help support the work of God here, and you start tithing. And so he started reading a whole bunch of scriptures to show me that tithing was in the Bible, and I said, no problem. I started tithing, 21 years old. That was a long time ago. Have you stopped tithing, Pastor? Not at all. Actually, I can honestly say, all through these years, that God has been faithful. I've never lacked. God's always provided. It's interesting, Oswald Smith, one of the great pastors in Canada during the Great Depression, pastored People's Church in Toronto, a great missionary church. Now, in the Great Depression, do you know how many people were hungry? Do you know how many people had tremendous needs and started coming to the church to ask for money? Lots. Oswald Smith always asked them this question. He said, do you tithe? And every last person that was coming to the church to get something from the church was not a tither. Isn't that interesting? I think it's fascinating because I think God becomes obligated in some ways that when you and I do what he asks, he does what he says he's gonna do. And we're gonna see in a minute what he's committed to doing when we do what he's asking us to do. Goes on to say, but it seems fair to ask God, do you really expect less of me who has your Holy Spirit within and lives in the wealthiest society in human history than what you demanded of the poorest Israelite? Well, I kind of agree with Andy, Randy Alcorn. I think, no, I've, of course God's gonna expect me to do this. Malachi said the Israelites were robbing God by withholding not only their mandatory tithing, but also their voluntary offerings. By giving less than their free will offerings than he expected of them, they were robbing God. If they could rob God with insufficient free will offerings, can't we do the same today? The Apostle Paul talks about giving as an obedience. He talks about setting aside a certain proportion of your income each week. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. To give less than he expects of us is to rob God. Of course, God doesn't expect us all to give the same amount. He expects us to give proportionally. And that's what we need to understand. But I'm going to say this. You know, people who are very wealthy, it's actually harder for them. You know, it's easy when you got a little bit of money. I started out at 21. I wasn't making that much. It wasn't a lot to give. But over time, as my salary increased, I started giving more. Then eventually I realized 
when I started having extra, God didn't stop and say, oh, that's good, you can, you can keep all the extra. No, now I have a greater responsibility to figure out what God wants me to do with that. But you know what really changed my life? I'm going to share a story that totally radicalized the way I think about giving. And it's found, it's a story of Jesus at the temple. And he's watching as these wealthy people are putting a lot of money, you know, and and apparently in those days they made a big thing about giving. So everybody knows who was giving a lot, right? And Jesus shares it was a little widow that came along and she dropped in two small coins that was really insignificant when you consider the amount. And then Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Why? All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. You know, it spoke to me that day. God isn't just interested in how much I'm giving. He's looking at how much am I holding back. I got challenged by that. Actually, this is the verse that put me in the ministry. Because I had a whole different plan, and God started speaking to me and saying, I'm not interested in you giving me money. I'm interested in you giving me yourself in totality. And this was the beginning of really me moving towards becoming a minister of the gospel. God defines my giving by what it's really costing me. Am I growing in this grace of generosity in my life? Can we be guilty of robbing God? I believe giving is a tremendous expression of worship and also trust in God. See, when I give to God, I have to trust that God's gonna take care of my needs, right? Uh, giving is one of the primary ways of freeing us from the bondage of materialism. How many think materialism is a big problem in this culture today? It's huge. You know, one way to break the hard bondage of being a taker is learned by being a giver. Isn't it interesting? It says in the book of Ephesians, if you are stealing, he says, steal no more, but rather get a job and give to those in need. The opposite of taking is giving. You want to break that in your soul? Start giving. It changes your whole orientation. You know, if giving is a problem, you need to say right now, I got a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a lack of trust in God. That's what it comes down to. And we need to be honest about that. You know, a reading of Malachi will reveal a number of ways in which Israel had been unfaithful to their God. In chapter one, you'll discover they were giving blemished animal offerings. You know, uh, they were, in essence, they, they were keeping the best for themselves and giving God the leftovers. You know, can you ask yourself, can I ask myself the question, am I giving God the leftovers of my life? Or am I giving God the best of my life? See, I hope that we're all able to say, God, I give you the best of my life. I'm giving you the first parts of my life. I'm giving you uh, all that I am to you. I'm, I'm, I'm devoting myself to you. How many know you cannot all give God? God's already given himself to us. But I'll tell you something. God, I feel, he feels an obligation when you and I are giving our life to him. He's, he's gonna be right there supporting that and honoring it. In chapter two, you're gonna discover that many of the Israelite men were divorcing their wives and marrying foreign women, which was a violation of their covenant with God. And you know, listen to what it says uh, here. It, you know, this really speaks to a lack of contentment with the person that God has blessed us with. The wisdom literature teaches us to love the wife of our youth. 
It says that. Can I just make a statement? Love is a choice. How many know what love is a choice? Now, you can say, Pastor, this person walked out on me. I get all of that. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's no reasons why people aren't divorced. I'm not going there. I'm just trying to challenge an idea inside of our heads. We need to choose to love the person we're with. Amen? And God notices that, and he says, hey, that's a withdrawal for me. Because you know what? God takes that stuff personally. It's, it's relational in nature, and God's relational. We need to understand this. Uh, but here in chapter 3, he says, yeah, but you're robbing me in tithes and offerings, and you're under a curse. You, you're violating your covenant agreement here in the book of Leviticus, and so the curses are coming on you. I'm going, I don't want God's curses on my life. I want God's blessing. That's where I'm at. I want God's favor. I want God's grace in my life. I want God's blessing in my life. That's where I'm at. I'm, I'm being honest. That's, it is a little self-motivating. Uh, I get it. But you know what? But I'm also wanting God to be glorified. I want God to be exalted. I, you know, I, I'm grieving over our country right now. I, I want God to be exalted in Canada. I want this nation to be known by its godliness. That's my cry. Not just by, you know, we're, we're not get, we're, you know, life is tough and things aren't working out and we're unhappy with this. I'm going, yeah, there's a lot of things I don't like about what's happening. But you know what I'm, where I'm at? I'm going, God, I beg of you, bring the church to its knees. Bring people to their knees. Get us crying out to you. Help us to humble ourselves in your presence. That's what we need as a nation. And then I always hear this statement, Pastor, I can't afford to tithe. You know what my response is? You can't afford not to. You see, that's the only way out. Isn't it? It's kind of an irony, isn't it? Ironically, I put many people can't afford to give precisely because they're not giving. Giving is an expression of our trust that God will take care of us. Plus, it's a discipline. If you learn how to discipline yourself, you will see benefits from that discipline. When we don't give, we are saying that we're in charge of our finances, but how many know we're not all that good at managing them at times, right? Come on. Anybody failed in this area? Well, I'm sure we all have. Why would God give us more when we've never surrendered this area in our lives to him? I mean, think about it. I, I really, I'm not asking God for more money. I'll tell you why. It's more responsibility. Because I don't see it as, oh, I get more to do what I want. I see it as more figuring out what God wants me to do, what he's giving me. It's a responsibility. And I think you've got to change your thinking about money and go in that direction and say, God, if you're giving me this, what do you want me to do with it? It's priority issues. And I, I think our priorities are often in conflict with God's priorities. Look, look at Haggai. Here's another guy. Same, same time as Malachi's Haggai. These are all in the same time. They're starting to rebuild the temple. And this is what God says to them. Oh, you guys expected much, but I see it turned out to be a little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. In other words, you have no interest in my priorities, my agenda. 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I've called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, on the labor of your hands. In other words, the harder you work, you just can't seem to get ahead. Some of you are totally relating to what I'm just saying. No matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to get ahead. You know, we had a business guy in our church. He was in so much debt. This was years ago. I, I preached a sermon, and I don't preach them that often on giving, but he was sitting there, and he realized he was doing everything wrong. He was in huge, I mean, he was like lots of money in debt, and he said, okay, I'm going to start tithing. And the moment he started doing that, he said it was amazing, Pastor. Everything got turned around. My business started going in the right direction. All of a sudden, I was making money hand over fist. I started, you know, amping up my giving. More came in. I started realizing, you know what? I'm trusting God. God's trusting me. Before that, God couldn't trust me. I was misusing what he was giving me. Let me move on to the third subtle way that we would draw from God. And it's to test his faithfulness to provide for us. Now, I know it's along the same line, but I think this is the only text that I'm aware of where God says, test me. It's not a good thing to test God. Matter of fact, the devil tempted Jesus to test the Father, but he didn't do that. But this is a verse that God himself initiates it. And, you know, I've already said that. God is not going to give you more than you can handle. It's a detriment to your life. How many know if you, you know, sometimes you want to bless somebody, but you know if you give it to them, they're going to destroy themselves with it, right? I mean, if I give money to somebody who's an addict, what's he going to go do? He's going to go take some more drugs, you know? Now, if I give him a meal to eat, hopefully he'll eat the meal. If I'm sitting next to him and he's eating and I'm eating, I can do that. But how many know what I'm saying? Sometimes we want to bless people, but we just can't because we know that if I give it to them, it's going to destroy them. And so we withhold it for that reason. I think God does the same thing. But here he says in verse 10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. God's signing this. Test me. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Wow. Okay, you know when people say, well, I don't know if this is going to work, Pastor. Well, God guarantees it. It's God making the guarantee. One time I went to the board years ago, I said, we should make this guarantee in our church. If somebody ties and they're not getting their money's worth, we'll guarantee it at the end of the year. I'll give everything back that they turned in. You know, the board, they, they were a little reluctant. I said, hey, why not? God's the one that's the guarantor. He's the one that's underwriting the whole thing. You know, it was kind of cute. I don't think we need to do that. I'm not trying to play any head games with you. I'm just saying God's the underwriter here. He's the one that says, try me in this. What can you lose? If God says it, I'm gonna do what God says. What God, God is obligated to keep his word. I love it. He says, I'm going to even prevent the pest from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. He says, hey, you know what? Things are going to start working out. You know how all those things keep breaking down? Hey, they're going to last longer than you think, maybe. You know? Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. A couple of thoughts emerge from this text. First of all, God challenges us to test his faithfulness. No. Actually, Giving is an act of trust. I give, I trust that God will take care of me. And you know what? I, I'm just going to speak for someone who's tithed for, you know, a long time. I'm trying to figure out, well, 46 years of tithing, I can say God's taking care of me. You know? 
I don't ask people for anything. I just talk to God when I have a need. It's amazing how God takes care of every single thing. I'm impressed with God. That's why I can tell you this with confidence. Do we believe that God is our source of supply? My hand goes right up. It's not my job. I mean, I could be asked to leave tomorrow, right? You're done, okay. Who's my source of supply? My father. Do you believe it's your job or your skills that bring in your livelihood, or is it God that's providing you the job, the skills, the health? I think it's God. He's behind the whole thing. You know, it's, it's interesting in our text, he makes a di- distinction between tithing and offerings. How many see, bring in your tithes and offerings. He makes two different distinctions. Now, I'm gonna read something from the Talmud. This is a Jewish uh, writings. Uh, Rabbi Maimonides, who was in the 12th century, he talks about offerings, okay? So I'm gonna share what he wrote about, uh, he kind of lists what he calls the eight degrees of charity or offerings, This has got to do with offerings. He says, the lowest level of charity is to give grudgingly. How many know in the New Testament says don't give grudgingly? But he says that it's better to give grudgingly than not to give at all. That's the lowest level. The seventh level of charity is to give cheerfully, but less than one should. Nah, you're getting there, but it's not quite right. Sixth level of charity is when one gives directly to the poor, but only after being asked. In other words, you have to be asked. The fifth level of charity is to give directly to the poor without being asked. Now we're catching on. It's getting a little better now. Okay, number five. The fourth level of charity is to give indirectly with the giver not knowing the identity of the recipient, but the recipient knowing the giver. So what's he saying? Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just watch how that principle is coming to play here. The third level of charity is to give indirectly with the recipient not knowing the identity of the giver and the giver knowing the identity of the recipient. But then you get to numbers, the second level, which is the second highest level. When you're giving indirectly with neither recipient nor the uh, identity of the giver or recipient is known. In other words, you're just giving through it like a benevolent fund, like we have in our church. You give to the benevolent fund, someone from the benevolent fund gives to people you've never seen. You know, everybody goes, well, I love the feeling of giving because it makes me feel good. Yeah, but who are we giving to? We're giving to God. And God says, when you're giving to me, it's not like God needs the money, but the poor need the money, right? So God distributes it, and that's a praiseworthy thing. But here's the highest level of giving is to help a person before they become impoverished, whether by offering a gift in a dignified manner, extending a loan, offering a job, or helping them begin a business of their own. What's he saying? He's saying, now... You're not making somebody dependent. You're making them independent of you, the giver. That's the best. Isn't that powerful? Now, those are offerings, okay? So, the other concept we need to understand is what does Malachi mean by the storehouse? Well, it's obvious he was speaking of the temple, okay? Why do you say that? Because in the book of Numbers, he tells the Israelites I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. These are the people that are, that are keeping the temple system functioning. That is why I said concerning them, they'll have no inheritance among the Israelites. Speak to the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tithe, a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. In other words, just because you're receiving from the people of God, you need to be tithing. So I'm, I'm a minister. I'm tithing too. 
I'm not just telling you to tithe. Actually, our church is tithing. What do you mean? We tithe to the missions. We don't keep it all here. We, you know, last year we actually gave more than a tithe. We gave $182,000 to missions last year, both home and abroad. That's great. That's quite a bit of money, folks. If, you, if you've been in a small church, that's bigger than most small church budgets. We're giving a lot. Some years we've given up to 200, 300,000, depending on what we were doing. One year we built an orphanage, 200,000 US dollars. We built it as a church. How many say that's pretty generous? That's amazing. So we've done some amazing things here. We don't do that every year, but that was a year God put it in our hearts to do. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor, juice from the wine press. In this way, you will also present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. Listen, you're giving the best, you're giving the first. That's amazing. He's saying, this is a big deal. You're giving to God. Remember who you're giving to. That's what he's telling them. I think that's important. So the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor of the wine press. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this manner. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites, and you will not die. Talk about strong language. Hey, better do this right. But let me just say this. When the people brought their offering, now some of them were completely given to God, but there were parts <clears throat> that the people themselves, as they were giving an offering, they got some of it back. Did you? How many know that? They ate of their own offering. Do you realize that when you're giving to the, to the church here, you're benefiting? Has anybody figured this out yet? You're getting a benefit too, every week. Lots of things are going on here. A lot of ministry is going on. Who are the beneficiaries? You are. Certainly I am. Other staff are. But it's, everybody's benefiting. Now, so where's the storehouse today? How does that concept apply in the 21st century? Well, some would suggest that we give as we deem fit, but now we're in control again. How many know that's a big issue in our lives? That was certainly true of the offering. We have, we have, it's up to us where we're going to give our offerings. But what about the tithe? It went into the temple. It went into the storehouse. They didn't have a control over that. They were to give to that. But then eventually the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So what did the Israelites do? They built synagogues. Where did their tithe go? To the synagogue. Then they rebuilt the second temple, but they didn't stop building synagogues. And actually, one of the passages in the Talmud gives the number of synagogues in Jerusalem at the time of the second destruction of the second temple is to be between 394 and 480 synagogues. So people were tithing there too. So the issue is that once that temple was destroyed, this synagogue assumed the place where they received the tithes. And how many know the church is modeled after the synagogue? How do you know that? Because the early believers were Jewish and they modeled the early church after the synagogue where prayer and the word of God was communicated. So I'm gonna close with this. We rarely consider how critical this area is. Most people would not even consider robbing another person, but we don't see withholding our gifts to God as robbery. Isn't, how many say that's true? We don't normally, how many say we normally don't think of withholding our gifts as robbery? We don't think of it that way. But yet Malachi says it. God says it. You know? Now, it's interesting, the one disciple, Judas Iscariot, what was he? He was a thief. 
It was this unresolved issue that led to the most devastating aspect of his life. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How many go, that's stunning. How many go, that's, that, isn't that, isn't that a, does that blow your mind a little bit? For 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold his soul. That's all it cost to sell his soul. Robbery in Judas's case led to rejection of Christ. How many people have chosen silver over Christ in this world? Far too many. It is a hard issue that needs to be addressed in each of our lives. The question is not simply, can we trust God to provide for us because I'm giving to him, but can God trust us that what he gives to us will be used in a manner that will glorify his name? And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You start giving, God's going to start blessing, and you're going to have a, a new challenge. And the new challenge will be, God, okay, now that you're blessing me, now what are we going to do? Because <laughs> we've got a new responsibility. Let's stand. <clears throat> you know, for some of you, this, you've, you knew this stuff. Just a reminder. For a lot of you, this is brand new. You know, Maybe you want to reflect on it some more. You know, I do have a blog that I'm producing every week. Every one of these sermon manuscripts go on the blog. I don't know if you know that. You can read it. Or listen to the sermon on stream again. Pick up all these texts and verses of scriptures. I'm not doing you a favor by not talking about it. I'm doing you a service by helping you understand what's needed in this fundamentally critical area of our lives. You know, my prayer right now, I'm going to pray for you, that every person in our church family will come out of debt. I'm going to pray that prayer. Anybody want to agree with me at that? Everybody comes out. That we're going to learn how to live our lives within the scope of what God has for us. I want to pray that God is going to bless you so that you can begin to be a good steward of what God's giving you. Yeah, that'll help the church. The tithes will go up. That'll be great. But offerings... That's up to you where you're going to give those. And that our offerings are going to accelerate, you know. I think we can do more. We're going to do more good in our land. So, Father, I just thank you this morning. You're speaking into our hearts. It's about trust. We don't give because we really don't trust you. And so, Father, we pray today that you'd forgive us if we're not giving the way we should. And for some of us, you know what? Tithing is great. That's a good beginning point. But for some of us, you're asking more because you've so blessed us that we have to be responsible for what you've done in our lives. And help us, Lord, to be incredible stewards of what you're blessing us with. I pray right now, Lord, that you will lead us into obedience and lead us out of debt and help us to live a disciplined life in this incredibly important area of our lives. I pray for spiritual freedom in finances, in the lives of your people, as we walk in obedience to your principles. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.